Welcome to the M Game Podcast. In this podcast, we're trying to learn how to play the motherhood game. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah Newberry Moore. And I'm Pam Ralph Jones. We are both pro athletes, mothers, and entrepreneurs. We're knee deep in the journey through motherhood. This podcast is here for us to share our unique experience balancing what it means to reach the top of your game and be a mother. We're going to be asking the hard questions, not only of other people, but of ourselves. Join us here on the show where we'll be discussing how to bring your M game. So welcome back to the M game podcast. Um, Up to this point, we've talked about family. We've talked about support systems. We've talked about getting pregnant uh, and maybe kind of what's going to come after that. Um, But here we are and Pam Jones and myself, Sarah Newberry Moore, are reuniting with you for episode three of the M Game, and I have a baby now. Yeah, what we uh, didn't envision was taking a four-month gap. Well, I guess we did envision it because we're realists and know that having a baby is takes a lot of time, and I'm also running a farm, and I, it actually came at the perfect time for me that Sarah had her beautiful baby in May, and therefore it kind of coincided with the start of when I got really busy. So we just gave ourselves a hiatus. So we're halfway through September now. Um, and Sarah has her little beautiful baby boy. So I'm going to let her tell you all about him and gush over how cute he is. He's really cute. This is so much fun. It is so much fun to be a parent. And I, you know, I kind of knew it would be, um, and I knew it would be hard too, but but the absolute joy that has come along with this is it is immeasurable. And that's what I've heard from so many women and so many men. Um, and it's just great. We had an awesome birth experience right up until the point that it wasn't awesome. Um, and I'd be totally happy to share more about that. But I think in this episode today, we kind of want to follow up on what we spoke about in episode two, um, support systems, family, partners, how, how, how do you approach the birth process? What happens? How do you support each other? Um, and I'm going to answer some of those questions based on my own experience. And, and we'll kind of talk about a lot of things related to that process and what comes afterward. Where I think would you that... Well, I was just going to say, I think that in episode two, we were really talking about like division of responsibilities and having that support network available to you, not only as parents, so i.e. support for caring for baby, but also support for you as a couple and your relationship. Because my gosh, I can tell you that having a baby during a pandemic. Also for us, when Rob and I had Harry not living near parents, um, and the only parents that we did have nearby were, um, having because of health reasons, having to be very, uh, careful and socially distanced and stuff. So we really, uh, didn't have a babysitter until Harry was like 14 months old. So we did all care for him up until that point. And it was really crazy and hard and, it meant that our relationship really like it was strained to not to breaking point, but it was strained way more than I thought it would be during that first year. And so that was something that during episode two, when we kind of did like, like a a double date, (laughs) a podcast double date, um, that we were saying to you and your husband Emmett about, you know, making sure that you have a plan that you can 
can stay connected as a couple and kind of have you're you're never going to go out on a date and not talk continuously about your baby and your plans for the baby and your plans as parents but being able to have that freedom to do that by yourself is really important yeah i mean now now most of our conversations are about like when the baby pooped last or how much he's eaten or like if the other person noticed that he did something really amazing. Um, and then we just repeat those stories about like how amazing he is over and over again. And then we realize that we need to talk about our lives too. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you were saying. You said strained to the breaking point. And one of the most interesting things about being postpartum as a couple um, for us was like realizing that we were actually fighting and we never really fought. I mean, we've had fights where both we have strong personalities, but we're very respectful of each other. And we try to keep things pretty, pretty cool, like a simmer, you know, when, when stuff is going wrong in our house and in our relationship. Um, but with the baby, we, we found in the first like four or six weeks that um, all of a sudden we would just realize we were in a fight. Uh, and I, and it of course has a lot to do with sleep deprivation. Um that's exactly what I was going to say. Like it's, it's the t- tiredness just puts you on your knees as an individual child or not. And then having tiredness on top of extra like things to do, like laundry and food shopping and extra things that you kind of normally just take in your stride. But when you're tired, it's just like so draining and a hundred percent that was what would cause all of our altercations as well when we were like in that kind of first few months phase was just sleep deprivation. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. That's why they use it as a torture device. It's incredible. And I think I've heard so many people say that since we've been, um, since we've been on this journey of being parents is like, yeah, there's a reason why they (laughs) sleep deprived prisoners (laughs) of war. So Yes, and we were effectively always doing that to each other um, postpartum. But, but I, you know, one let let me circle back here, and I'll start a little bit on our birth story because we had such an incredible bonding experience during the birth process um, that finding ourselves, you know, a few weeks down the road fighting, we we still had this really amazing um, platform to work off of to try to resolve the these domestic disputes that we were having, you know? Um, and, and so if that's okay with you, I'm going to tell you how, um, our baby Iron Russell Stone Moore arrived into the world. Are you ready? Yeah, I would love that. Um, so, okay. Full disclosure. I had initially planned to have a home birth and I really wanted a home birth. Um, I got really attached to the idea Um, I put in my time and research. I had a doula who is a very close friend. And then I also worked with another doula remotely. We learned a lot about the home birth process and all these things. And somewhere around like, I don't know, six months into the pregnancy, um, I had been seeing an obstetrician in Miami and I thought I was going to be able to both have her as an obstetrician and have a midwife and doula. And she made a really smart recommendation to me, which was you need to choose because if you're going to really work on a home birth, you want that midwife to know your body and you want your body to be ready for that. Um, And I realized as I thought about it that week that I really, really liked my obstetrician and I felt like I trusted her. 
And I had this incredible moment where I was just like, okay, I want a hospital birth. And it's not because I want a medicalized birth. It's because I like that person. And I think that I'm, I feel safe. I feel like my body is safe and my baby's body is safe with her. So I made a full 180 and decided to go with a hospital birth. And it's interesting because we have asked so many women, you know, as you guys know, who are listening, or you might not know, I don't, I'm not sure. We used to have a, we had another podcast before this podcast where we interviewed a lot of athlete moms and we talked a lot about their birth stories. And we talked to so many women and heard so many birth stories. And I just never knew what my own was going to be like until I was in it, you know, and I, um, you kind of idealize these certain approaches. And I was just a hundred percent, like, I want a home birth. I want a natural birth. And and when it came time to make a decision about it, it was actually very simple. Um, it was about where, yeah, where you ahead. felt safe. I was going to say yes, but where you felt safe and where like you, it's so instinctual. It's almost like it, the decision doesn't even need to be made because it's like, it's already there. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And I think if I hadn't had, um, if I hadn't had such a great doctor who made me feel that way, maybe I would have proceeded with the home birth. And, um, and so, so that happened and time passed and we are getting closer and closer to the baby, baby arriving. And um, then we went in for one of our final uh, visits with the obstetrician, I think like two weeks before, three weeks before the baby's due date. And that's when she hit me with the classic doctor move, which was, I'm actually going out of town the day of uh, the day after your baby's due date. So maybe you want to schedule an induction. And I was like, ah, that's how they get you (laughs) because I had wanted to go into labor naturally. Um, And then I was like, okay, I made this decision working with this doctor. I chose a hospital birth. So now if I want the doctor, I need to schedule an induction. Fine. Schedule the induction. I scheduled the induction for the day before the baby's due date, Um, uh, which we did I don't know this is ridiculous but the but if he was born on the on the 20th he would be a Taurus and if he was born on the 21st he would be a Gemini so I thought if I scheduled his induction date for the 20th he could choose which zodiac sign he wanted to be um I felt like it wasn't fair to take that away from him so I've heard that Gemini babies are really really hard work so and he and he came on the 21st so he is a gemini baby um (laughs) yes i mean i guess i'm telling i'm telling you guys all this because up until a certain point you know i had in my head how i thought i was going to do it and what i thought was going to happen and all of a sudden i was i was just along for the ride of the series of decisions that you know made the most sense at any given moment and um and then i got kind of excited about having an induction date because i thought okay i really know when i'm going to meet my baby um, and I tried everything that last week to get him to come naturally. I'm well, weeks before that, you know, like I ate so many dates. I don't even want to see another date again. Um, so many dates, date balls. I had the fridge full of date balls. <laughs> Sister was eating date balls. Emmett was eating date balls, like, you know, energy, like little energy snacks. Um, those things are delicious though. <laughs> they are. They're really good. They're really good, but not like for months. <laughs> and then I drank, I made, I would make um, giant pitcher, like a giant pitcher of raspberry tea. And I drank raspberry tea, raspberry leaf tea all the time. Uh, what else did I do? Oh, we tried sex for sure. Like for sure. Like the last mm-hmm. month of my pregnancy, sex was like hard to do because I was huge. 
And so I reached a point where I was like, this is not super comfortable for me. Um, but when it came time to like decide, do like, do we use, like, I was like, yes, we use this as a tool to get the baby out. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's no, it's no longer a, a, let's just be close to it. It's, it's a, we have a job to do. And this is part of that process. Which is funny because it comes kind of full circle. Um, we did, we got pregnant intentionally. So we were having sex to have a baby a lot of the time and it was still great, but it was like, it was like, okay, we better go. We got to do it right now. Um, and then full circle end of the pregnancy. It's like, let's go get the baby out. <laughs> I know it's like a tying a neat bow on like sex, no longer being this like free loving thing. If your relationship, like sex becomes like really routine and purposeful. Yes. More on that later, because it's really interesting how, how life changes after a baby arrives. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So, um, so, 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 so we tried everything to get him out naturally. And then, you know, the night before, um, the induction date, he was not budging, seemed pretty happy where he was. And so we went in, um, for our induction and, and the baby, I mean, my labor certainly hadn't started naturally. I was only dilated uh, one and a half centimeters the morning of induction. And, and did they give you, do you remember what drug they gave you? Was it Pitocin? Yeah. And so the first thing that they do is they put this giant IV in your wrist, which I've talked to a lot of moms afterward who had the same experience. And it's like the most painful place to possibly put an IV because it's like on your bone. Mm-hmm. Plus you're moving around during labor, right? So you're, you know, and when you grab your own legs or you touch things like the, this giant IV is just pressing into your, your, um, your wrist. So they put that in. That was literally the first thing that happened at like 7am. And I was pissed. I was like, this is the worst. Why did I choose to do this? Mm. Um, I was, they, because it's a pandemic, they took me out of the waiting room, put me in a room, put a giant IV in my wrist. My husband wasn't there. It felt very sterile and like very medical, medical. Yeah. And scary. It was really scary. Um, mm. cause you, your adrenaline is just pumping. Cause you're like, you know, you're close to meeting the baby. Yeah. You know, what's coming. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so then they, and then they started Pitocin at around 10 AM. So they kind of left me in the room for a while and kind of like let you get situated. And then they started Pitocin at 10 AM and, um, and it took, uh, several hours for me to get to the point that, um, that I was like sort of an active labor. I think I, I think they kept, they kept, they kept increasing the amount of Pitocin on a regular basis. Um, I had decided I didn't want an epidural. So for the first like 10 hours or 12 hours of, of labor, I, I was pretty happy with that decision. Cause I wasn't in pain. It was, it was, um, I was having contractions, but it wasn't, they weren't very painful. And then at around um, 7 p.m., they decided that I was dilated enough to break my water for me. And so when they did that and the baby's head descended like onto my cervix, that's when the pain actually started. And I have felt like I was like, this is going to be great. If this is what it is, it's fine. I have this Mm -hmm. under control without an epidural. And once, yeah, once he was actually sitting like head down on my cervix the contractions were really painful and I'm sure a lot of people have had similar experiences 
in labor. Um, I would be really interested to hear from anybody that has been induced specifically with Pitocin, because I have a lot of friends that have gone through that exact same process. And every single one of them who did not want to have an epidural, in fact, every single one of them, whether or not they wanted an epidural or not, had one, because apparently it is such a quick transition from my baby is tucked up, not anywhere near the bits, which are not quite stretchy yet because I've never had a baby before to like pushing in the places that make you in agony and it's, and your body is like, whoa. And so I don't, I, I have yet to meet someone who's been induced and not had to have an epidural because it happens so quickly. Exactly. And that's exactly right because I mean, it was an incredibly painful experience and I think I made it through, mm, I think I got the epidural at like 10 p.m. Oh, man. No, 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 midnight, midnight, because it was, it was, it was nighttime. Um, so I, I made it maybe like six hours or something before actually asking for it. And it just got to a point where I couldn't, the pain was so intense. The Pitocin, if you, if you're listening and you don't know what this drug does, Pitocin is a synthetic form of oxytocin, which is your happy hormone. Um, and when you're in labor, your body's naturally, I mean, I think I'm getting this right, but I might be getting it wrong. Your body is, the oxytocin is what is um, basically making your contractions happen. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they say sex is such a good way to induce labor is because it gives you oxytocin. It's all—it's like a lot of people, I think, think it's like the activity and the positions you're in when you are having sex as a nine month pregnant woman, but it's, it's not, it's a hundred percent because of the release of oxytocin. So ladies, if you're ever going to be trying to use sex to induce labor, you have to make sure that your experience is prioritized because otherwise there's just no fucking point in doing it. Just FYI. You need to feel, you need to feel good to get the baby out. Um, <laughs> so Pitocin is, is basically um, fake oxytocin. It's synthetic, right? It's man-made. Um, and so they, they pump it into you and, and essentially your body contracts more often than it would, um, if it was just oxytocin. Like, I think your natural contractions aren't the same as Pitocin induced contractions are, and they're, they make them happen fast and short and close together. Um, and so you don't get a break. And I think that's part of why a lot of women wind up taking the epidural, which I did full disclosure, um, as I said before, I did accept the epidural about six hours after my water was broken for me. Um, it was so painful. And Emmett had promised me. So let's talk about this. My partner, my husband, Emmett, was there for the entire birth um, and the entire labor. Um, even having a baby during a pandemic, I was allowed to have um, one person in the room with me. And that was my husband. In the last episode, you met Emmett. Um, and you heard kind of like what his expectations were for his journey into fatherhood. Uh, and we kind of had this amazing birth experience together as most couples do, but he had promised me that if I asked for an epidural, he was going to say, are you sure you want that? Um, because I had told him to not let me take the epidural which I think a lot of women tell their partners. And so a classic, like we got to this point in the process where it was so painful. And I said, Emmett, tell them to come in. I really want the epidural. And he, and he started to say, 
are you sure you want that? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. I am. Get it now. Like, let's fucking go. And it's like, it's so funny because they, they tell you that what you see in the movies about birth is nothing like what it is in real life. And that is true, except for that part. Except for that part, because every woman who decides she wants an epidural basically tells her husband to fuck off if he tries to stop her from getting it. So, so that was, that was much better. And after having the epidural, I could, I could sleep. Honestly, I slept um, for like three, three hours, I think two or three hours. Um, Which is so essential. I think that that is the biggest, um, the big, the hardest thing I think about labor, especially like a long labor. Like if you were being induced at 10 a.m., you, I feel like I would have had expectations that that baby was going to be with me by the time I went to sleep that night. And that, and that is not what you had to deal with. So like, you probably didn't sleep great the night before because you have so much anxiety and like expectations for the next day. And then you're trying to go through the hardest thing your body will ever have to go through. And then you're basically going into the night and you probably were getting regular checks on seeing how dilated you were at this point. You probably were going into the night where they were like, oh yeah, you're, this baby is not coming until tomorrow. And you're like, well, how the heck am I going to make it until tomorrow? If this, and then push it out. Are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, I'm like the sleep deprivation again, starts in early in parenthood, I guess. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does. It's amazing. And, um, and so true. And you know, one thing I forgot to mention in case anybody's totally interested in all the gory details is um, before, before they broke my water for me, the way that they try to get your cervix dilated initially, there's a couple different methods, but they often put a balloon like a catheter. Um, yeah, I think a catheterized balloon inside your, your vagina and they get it up to the cervix and they inflate it with, with water and they, um, try to get the cervix to start ripening more. So I had a balloon in there for a while before before they determined that we were good. They pulled pulled the balloon out and then eventually broke the water. Um, there were so many things that no matter how much research I did, I didn't know were going to happen. And that was one of them. But yeah, we were getting, you get regular checks. I mean, a doctor comes in on rounds and um, one other thing that, I mean, I kind of knew this was going to be the case, but I didn't really understand that getting checked was basically just like a manual exam. So they're just reaching into your vagina and checking your cervix dilation. And this is so much detail. I'm so sorry. If you were pressing play on this podcast, thinking you were getting something else, I am so sorry. <laughs> thinking that they were just going to hear about the sweet smelling baby. <laughs> sweet, sweet smelling babies and athlete moms. No, this is a very serious episode. Um, so, okay. Um, I'll reel it back in a little bit and, and start from where we left off with the process, which is that I accepted an epidural and I got some rest. Um, my nurse kept telling me I had an awesome nurse that night. And after the epidural, they kind of help you get your legs around a birth ball or rotate your body or, or hold your pelvis in your body in a position that's going to be more conducive to the baby coming out. So it isn't like when I was thinking, okay, home birth is the way to go. Here are all the things I'm not going to get during a hospitalized birth. The truth is the, the nurses um, on the birth floor in the hospital are incredible. And they're doing most of the things that a really good midwife um, or doula would do. And I mean, 
they deliver a lot of babies. Yeah. And everyone's goal, be it midwife, doula, OB nurse, obstetrician, um, everyone's job and everyone's goal is to get babies into the world safely. And, and there are, and there are age old techniques which are used by everyone. Yeah. Like the birthing ball and, and, um, and, getting your body into the right positions is like, the, it's just common sense. It's not a, it's not like, oh, well, this is like some airy fairy stuff that only the home birth people do. It's like, no, this is like, this is medical stuff that everyone does because it works like getting these babies out. It's so true. No, it's so true. And actually they're all really aligned. I remember um, right before I went in for the induction, the day before I went to see, I had been seeing a prenatal masseuse who was also a doula. She's a very nice person, and I know that she didn't intend to make me feel any kind of negativity, but she asked me because it was, um, I had told her that the baby was coming soon, but I hadn't mentioned that I had an induction date scheduled, and she was very a very natural birth-oriented person, and so when I went in for this final massage, she was like, okay, like, how are you feeling? Like, are you getting ready? And I said, yeah, actually, we're going in to have the baby induced tomorrow morning. And her face just dropped. And um, and she sat me down and she was like, okay, well, you know what, let's take some time to talk about this. And I think that was a really nice gesture. Um, because she was she wanted to offer support. But, um, but she was very fearful of medicalized birth. And she told me or she shared some statistics that were untrue. She said that um, 80% of women who get induced have a C-section, which is, it's not true. That's not true at all. If that was the rate of C-section for induction, they wouldn't do it because <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and uh, she said a couple other things like that, that were just like absolutely terrifying. And she's like trying to prepare me for dealing with what she perceives to be a very frightening world. And I went in, you know, when I went in the next morning and I saw my obstetrician, um, before the induction, I said, is this true? This is what my prenatal doula told me. And she was like, no, a hundred percent. No. And she gave us, you know, she gave us a lot of reassurance of why that wasn't the case. And, um, and then also one thing she said that I was very memorable was, I don't know why they hate us so much, you know, cause she's like, we love doulas. We mm -hmm. love midwives like we have so much respect for everything they do and we want to bring it into our world and okay maybe my obstetrician is different from other obstetricians she's young you know but like I thought that was so interesting why do they hate us so much there's definitely purists out there for sure on both the natural birth side and the hospital birth side um like I remember the OB that I was seeing before I transferred to home birth team I said to her that I was considering a home birth and that in order for my insurance to accept, to, to pay for the home birth, which was like 25% uh, of what I would pay or the insurance company would pay for a hospital birth. So it was like a lot cheaper for my insurance company for me to do a home birth as well. But um, in order for them to like cover it, I had to be referred to a home birth team. And my obstetrician refused. I was like, this is what I want. Like, this is my choice. And she blankly refused. And she was like, no, it's not safe. And so there are purists on both sides, right? Where there's like this massive line and it's like, it's like a them versus us thing. And it just, it, it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. But, but I do think that there are people as well that are like on, 
like your obstetrician and I think my midwives as well, like both of my midwives worked in hospitals for 20 years before they transferred to home birth. And so there, there is like, there are people that are like bridging the gap, but I think it's quite rare. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, and then you you find yourself in it at the intersection of those things. And you, yeah, it's just, it's incredible mm-hmm. to how, like you said, how many of those age old techniques are being applied both by, by, by midwives and by obstetricians and nurses. Um, and that was kind of the realization I was having when I was there. I was like, well, I feel so supported, um, by these women who are, who are the, who are nursing on this floor and who are could just all night long, all, mm-hmm. all day long, helping women through the birth process. Um, anything I needed in terms of like repositioning my body. Oh, another fun fact. Did you know that if you get an epidural, it doesn't mean that you can't move? Cause that's the, you know, I had this misimpression that if I got an epidural, I wouldn't be able to move my legs mm-hmm. and it depends how much you ask for, right? Cause if they have a little pump that's putting medication into your IV and if you keep pressing the button, you get more medication, but if you don't press the button, you have kind of like a slow drip, um, of, of this painkiller and, or, well, I guess it's not really a painkiller. I'm not sure exactly. It's a, it's a spinal block. The spinal block. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, so essentially like I was able to move my legs myself in bed until it got so painful that I wanted more Mm -hmm. of that spinal block. And, um, and yeah, so that was, that was, that was great. That whole, that whole night, that nurse that was taking care of me kept saying, we're going to have a baby by the time my shift is over. I know it. So I was really hopeful the baby was going to arrive before 7 a.m. Um, and I was progressing really well. My cervix was dilating really well. I got a little stuck at six centimeters, but then after that, it went very fast. And unfortunately he didn't arrive by the end of her shift, but at around eight 30 or nine, they, they started asking for the obstetrician to come in to deliver the baby. And, um, we had a great situation set up. Emmett had put a diffuser in the room. He had been playing music all night. He had the lights down low. It was so cool. All the nurses all day long, all night long. Everybody just kept coming in and saying, this is my favorite room. I want to be in here because it was, he had created like his own little, his own little magical space. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it was preserving his sanity, but it was helping me too. And, um, and so at around like nine or 10, the obstetrician came in and, um, she said, okay, yeah, I think we're going to be ready to push soon. Um, and we didn't start pushing until 10, 15 or something like that. Um, but it was, but it was, uh, an amazing experience. I wasn't, I wasn't having a lot of pain of any kind because of the epidural, but I was very in the experience and very actively participating in it. I couldn't move my legs that much myself, but, um, but we didn't use the stirrups right away. They had a nurse and Emmett hold a leg and then I held my own legs. Um, I was allowed to push, to lead the pushes how I wanted to, um, which was a concern that I had had at certain moments in the process when I felt like, um, it made sense. I would ask the obstetrician to tell me if she wanted to to lead or count them down or ask me to do something specific. Um, I let her choose how to orient my pelvis based on what she thought was going to work best. 
I guess with not every, I mean, I'm sure not every obstetrician or not every patient and obstetrician have that kind of dynamic in the, in that part of the process, but I felt very much like she, like I trusted her to help me make those decisions. Well, that was one of the reasons why you chose her, right? Is because you knew that you guys had that kind of connection, that relationship and that trust that you were like, you're going to help me get this baby out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because it's not everyone, I think everyone thinks that like labor is this, it's all on us. It's all on us women, poor women. We have to push these babies out of our vaginas. It's so hard. And it's like, yeah, it's really fucking hard, but it's not supposed to be done alone. Like you're the one that's physically doing the work, but you have these people around you that are like, that are enabling you. And she's one of those people. She was one of the, like it, I'm sure that your, your process of actually pushing your baby out would not have been the same had it not been, she not been your OB. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And it was a, it was really, it really felt like being on a team. I had the obstetrician sitting. She actually sat at the foot of the bed. Um, she wasn't standing. She was sitting sort of next to me a little. My, um, I was often like sometimes sideline sort of position to deliver. And then there was another doctor there and my husband, and we were all in between pushes. We were literally telling jokes like, because it was, it was just this awesome environment with a lot of people with good personalities. And, um, and to be honest, they were kind of making fun of me in like a, in a nice way, because between every push, I would ask how I could do it better. And then they would kind of tell me, and then I would tell everyone what we needed to do next. And they thought that was really funny. Like, cause they, cause my obstetrician knew I was an athlete and she was like, this is the funniest birth I've ever been to because I've never had a woman do this before. It's like and always trying to perfect and get better each one. I was like, okay, on the next one, Emmett, I'm going to start counting, but I need you to pick up my leg at four. Okay. Not at three. <laughs> like, and they thought it was so funny. So we're all laughing between pushes and it was just, it was awesome. And then so cool. Cause the baby started crowning and she just said, don't push, don't push. And then she went and got scrubbed up and so did the other doctor. And, um, and it was like, don't push the baby out until I'm ready. And I, and I have the gown on and then you can give me the baby. And, um, and when I pushed iron out, it was just this amazing moment. And I laid him on my stomach and he was, he was beautiful and heavy and, but a little bit gray. And so that's when it got kind of scary because she asked Emmett to cut the umbilical cord. And then when he was trying to cut it, and I don't know if anybody out there has ever cut an umbilical cord. It's very hard to cut it. It's mm-hmm. like, it's thick. Mm-hmm. And it's rubbery. thick and muscly and like sinewy. It's like, I can, it's, I remember watching Rob do it and it's like cutting through like a really tight piece of, sinewy meat or something like a steak with like loads of connective tissue yeah exactly so Emmett's over there trying to cut it and he's like missing it and he's like what (laughs) and the doctor's like hurry up and that's when we both knew that something was wrong um and they as soon as he cut the cord they grabbed him and there was all you know it's crazy because because uh they grabbed him and um they they immediately took him um, hold on one sec. Sorry, Pam. I'm just having so much trouble, like keeping space. No, it's okay. I fucked it up because I usually just set it up right. And I didn't, um, it stopped recording. Okay. There you go. You ready? 
Yeah, I'm ready. So as soon as as soon as they as uh, as soon as they whisked the baby away, it was obvious that something had gone wrong because they had an entire uh, NICU response team in the in the room, and I didn't mm. notice it happening because I was so consumed with having the baby come out and seeing him on top of me and seeing Emmett cut the cord. And then the next thing I knew they were working on him and, um, and the, the obstetrician was trying to deliver my placenta and I kept trying to see where the baby was. And they even had like a nurse even stood between me and the team that was working on him because it was so scary that they, I think that's what they tend to do um, to make sure that the mother isn't, you know, isn't able to see it. Um, but, uh, but I mean, long story short, what had happened was on his way out, he had aspirated meconium or they thought he had, um, and when a baby aspirates meconium, what it means is that that initial intestinal lining that they have while they're in the womb, um, somehow comes out and it comes out in the placenta, um, or it comes out, um, in the birth canal. And the baby, uh, as they're opening their mouth and trying to take a breath, um, they inhale it. And meconium is basically poop. So the funny part of the story is that my baby tried to eat his own poop on his way out of the womb. But <laughs> we won't, we'll never tell him that. Um, no, it's actually a really big deal because if they get that, that stuff is like tar. And if you've ever cleaned a baby's first diaper you know how sticky and gross and and just alien it is and so if you imagine what that would do to the to all of the parts of the inside of your lungs right it would be pretty bad and it can create very long-term lung health issues for children um but more than that if they aspirate it and they can't breathe they can get hypoxia or they can have a hypoxic um, incident in their brain, which could lead to other developmental issues. So all we knew as this was happening and I was laying in the bed and trying to deliver the placenta without, I mean, I, I didn't even know that was happening, to be honest. I just knew that the obstetrician was still working on me. Um, and as the nurse was standing between me and my baby, all I knew was that something was wrong. And I just kept asking Emmett over and over again, is he okay? Is he okay? And Emmett kept trying to say yes. But as like moments passed, it was really obvious that Emmett wasn't sure if he was okay. And my doctor was kind of yelling across the room to the NICU rapid response team, giving them information on the baby, saying his heart rate had been good the entire delivery because they weren't sure what they, they hadn't seen his heart rate up until that moment. So they might have just assumed, okay, if he wasn't breathing when we got there, was he ever breathing or what was he, was he struggling before that? So she's giving them information that's helping them decide how to help the baby. Um, she's trying to deliver my placenta and my husband is standing on the left side of me. I'm between him and the baby and obviously there's a nurse between me and the baby and he looks like he like he's seeing a ghost um i've never seen him so afraid and while he was trying to help me be less afraid it was just i think that probably was one of the most difficult moments of his entire life um navigating that exact scenario and so then a few moments later they're rushing the baby 
back over to me and they put him in my arms and I can see his like eyes moving. Like I can see him alive and he's alive and I know, okay, he's alive right now. And I held him, I think for three seconds before they, because they really, they just presented him to me so that I could really like see that he was alive. And then they took him away and took him out of the room to the NICU. And the doctor who had worked on him came over and she was a very young, a very young doctor. And um, she maybe didn't use the best language to explain what had happened, but she said, um, we think that he might have brain damage or lung damage or both. And so we're taking him to the NICU. He wasn't breathing well when he came out. We suctioned his lungs and we intubated him. And we're going to see what we can do to help him. So then everybody was gone. Pretty much my, my placenta came out a few minutes later. Actually, it was crazy because in hindsight that what happened with the placenta was really intense. Like she had to, it was retained. So she had to put her, her, her hand up there and take it out. And that was probably one of the more traumatic things that happened to, to me during the birth experience, but I barely registered it because I was more concerned with the fact that the baby was gone. And uh, before I knew it, the room was like empty and it was just me and Emmett. And we were absolutely shocked. Like we didn't even know, we had not prepared for this. Like we knew something could go wrong, but we were not prepared for all of the emotions and all of the fear and all of the intensity of having your baby whisked away from you. Um, and I just remember we were sitting there on the bed and like neither one of us could even really cry because we were just so, just so frightened. And um, I just started repeating facts that I knew to him. I was like, okay, he was breathing when he left. Okay, they said this might be the case. They didn't say it is the case. His heart rate was good throughout the entire birth. Like, so all of a sudden we're just, we're like trying to create our own reality. You know, we're like, what is actually happening? Because when you're in a medicalized situation like that, they're going to give you information that is going to be clear, but maybe not... Um, emotionally very helpful <laughs> yeah well also they're giving you information which is like very like they're just giving you information but they're not telling you how to deal with that information or what that information actually means they're just saying these are the facts and you're like well i didn't go to medical school so can you tell me what that actually means for my baby man yeah. that sounds really traumatic for like i can't even imagine you're, you're kind of recounting this story and i'm there like i can literally picture it like through your eyes like how you must have been in I mean just having a baby alone and the baby coming out fine you still often go into shock because it is such an overwhelming feeling to have like you said that baby just placed on your chest and you being like holy shit this thing has been living inside of me for over nine months and now all of a sudden it's a human being walking or living on the face of the earth not in my stomach like that is a mind-blowing experience in itself but then to have layer after layer after layer of trauma on top of that I just can't even imagine it must have just been like an out-of-body experience it was crazy you're totally right yeah I would say out-of-body experience like or in like not or disassociative yeah like, to survive meant like psychologically it was like uh, just rem trying to you're just slowly receding into your mind you know you're like I don't want to be here you know so both of us were having this experience like we just wanted to go back into our 
our cave, you know, into a cave, just leave. Like, because we, we didn't want to be alive. You know, you're like, I don't want to live unless the baby's alive. I don't care anymore. So you have this moment of becoming a parent where you're like, nothing matters, but this baby's life. But now you don't know if the baby has a life and there's nothing you can do. And I, and we wound up just kind of having this really serious conversation where we told each other that, okay, if something happens, we have to get through this together. Like we need to be there for each other because if something goes wrong and he doesn't make it, this is going to be one of, this is literally going to be the hardest thing that will ever happen to us in our lives. Oh my God. I can't believe you had to have that conversation like within the hours of you having your first baby. Like that is so heartbreaking. I can't believe how cheerful you are. I feel like that would be something that would scar you for life. It is. Well, we, we talked to, well, I mean, one of the big takeaways is like after this whole experience, we certainly worked with a therapist to address the birth trauma because it, it resulted, and we can talk about the, a lot of the other details down the road, but it resulted in a lot of other issues like with breastfeeding, for example. Um, but, but if, but we, I finally fell asleep because Emmett kind of got in the bed with me and just held me for a little bit. And like, we just said, and then I was just saying, okay, you know what? And if, and if he has brain damage, he's still our baby. Like he's going to be alive. That's all that matters. So we're preparing ourselves to have a handicapped child or to have no child. And then I was so exhausted from being in labor for 20 hours or something that I finally fell asleep and Emmett couldn't sleep. I didn't know that. Of course he couldn't sleep. He hadn't just had a baby. His child was in the NICU. So while I was asleep, he got up and he went um, into the NICU to find the baby. And um, by the time I woke up, Uh, I heard him outside the door of my room on the phone and he was on the phone and his voice sounded happy. And I was like, Oh my God, my baby is alive. You know, because I didn't, I like, (laughs) Sarah, honestly, I feel like I'm going to cry. This is literally just the most, I honestly can't even imagine like going through that. You must've just felt so just, I, yeah, I can't even imagine like. I was so relieved. So so relieved. And, and Emmett came in and he said, okay, look, um, he's stabilized. He's alive. He has, he still has the intubation tube in. He has a feeding tube. He has an IV. Um, they are, they put a EEG monitor on his head for the next 48 hours to monitor his brain activity to make sure that he didn't have brain damage. Um, so far the monitor, this was only a few hours later. So far, everything looked normal. Um, if they were, if there were more signs of brain damage, they were going to use, uh, they, what they do is they apply a a blanket, like a cooling blanket that slows the brain metabolism down and allows it to heal. So Emmett said, okay, they said that they only have so many hours to put this blanket on him if he has brain damage. So I'm going to go back in the room at this time. And if the blanket's not there, even if they haven't told us anything yet, that probably means he doesn't have brain damage. So then we were there sit, sitting there talking about it more. And then we really said, okay, he's alive. Yes. When, you know, we start trying to be like, this is good. This is good. Um, and then we're saying, okay, if he has brain damage again, he's still our baby. This is what we're going to do. We're going to figure out how to give him everything he needs. There's nothing, there's nothing that will take away our joy at, you know, having a, a baby that is alive and is our baby and we will love him no matter what his challenges are. And so we kind of make it through that next couple hours and we, that's when we called our parents and told them what had happened. And, um, and then Emmett went back to check on the baby and there was no blanket. And 
Then even a few hours later, he started to develop a reputation in the NICU for pulling out his intubation tube and pulling out his IV and his feeding tube. And we started to realize that this was a really fucking strong kid mm. and he was fine and he was going to be fine. But it didn't make it less scary the following days. Yeah. How long was he in the NICU for? He was there for five days. But to be honest, I think it was um, that was only because they were waiting to get him an MRI. And it took several days to schedule it because mm. it was a big hospital and there's only two MRI machines. Um, which by itself is like insane that they could drag out a NICU stay. But but that being said, we had the baby at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. It is one of the best NICUs in the country. And I want to just go full circle here and say everybody's birth experience is different and all the choices we make are ours and we make them for a reason. I didn't know that I would have been so happy in the end to have made the choice I did because while I could argue if I had a home birth that was natural, maybe he wouldn't have aspirated meconium something would have been different in his body and my body and he wouldn't have aspirated meconium on the way out of the womb. But if he had at my house, I don't think I could have gotten him to a NICU in time. And for us now, looking back on it, I, I just think I'm really glad I liked my obstetrician so much that I wanted to have the baby in the hospital. Yeah. And I think like the moment that you know that your baby is okay and safe and well, that is immediately means the decision was correct. Right. Yeah. Like had you, had you chosen to have a home birth and then God forbid had something bad happened to iron and then somehow you managed to pull yourself around four months later and we were having this conversation and you were like, well, my baby died or my baby did get brain damage would you still have been there going, yeah, home birth was the right decision for me? Probably not. You would have been saying, you'd have been kicking yourself saying, I fucking wish I'd had a hospital birth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that goes back to like, you know, we often talk about um, how we, you know, kind of need to trust our gut and give ourselves the space and the grace to like make good decisions and to, and, you know, just to heal and grow and all these things. And it's like, I don't think I will ever tell another woman like that, that she should have a hospital birth or she should have a natural birth because at the end of the day, the best advice I could give somebody is what makes you feel the most confident? Because when you're confident, just like in sport, just like in other parts of our lives, when you're feeling good about something, it's probably the right decision for you. Totally. And like you saying about that doula masseuse doing you the horror stories makes my blood boil. Because as much as she might have been the best, like the like with the best intentions, but nobody should be telling you what is the right decision for you. Nobody, and it's the same as as it's like your OB telling you like you can't ha you can't straddle both worlds. You have to just choose. But she wasn't there going, don't choose that. You should go to the hospital. She was just saying you need to make a choice, and it's your choice, and it shouldn't be anyone else's. It's the same as like you know you there there are just so many. Like there are so many people out there that feel like, you know, they have the right because they have knowledge about a certain thing, but it's like, it, it doesn't put you in their shoes. Like it doesn't put like, you have knowledge about sailing and you could be working with a young athlete. Cause I know you do coaching and you could be there saying, 
this is the right path for you to, to, you know, you should go into this class, this boat class, or you should go this based on your potential and based on all the information that I know, because I'm knowledgeable on this subject, but it has to be their decision. Like you can't, you can't, you can give someone information, but you can't say like this, you know, her trying to talk you out of a hospital birth the day before getting induced. Like that is bullshit. I agree. No, we all need to do better. I mean, I think when we just, it's just a great reminder to just to consider that you don't have enough information to ever tell somebody else what to do with their body. Yeah. In, in a medical situation, no, no effing way. Like it is not, it's not right. Unless there is, unless you were reaching out to her saying, I don't know what to do. Can you help me make that decision? Right. Right. No, I mean, I think that's probably a great takeaway from, from sharing this birth story is just like, you know, first of all, like maybe you're listening and you're going to have a baby soon. Maybe you're trying to get pregnant. Maybe you just like hearing from athlete moms like us. Um, But this is a great, a great reminder to, to take the path of confidence and to remember that your situation is unique and you need to, that's why you need to lean on that self-confidence and, and, and use the information that you have at hand to make your best decisions. And if you happen to be someone who tends to give others a lot of advice, you're probably very helpful to them, but try to remember that in these situations, everyone's different. Um, and I'm super big fan of home birth. Like I, I really am. Um, and so the moral of this episode for me is not like, make sure you go to a hospital because something can go wrong. It's more like, hey, there are beautiful and very terrifying things that happen during the birth process and set yourself up to be the most confident you can be. And then if you're not the person having the baby, help that other person make confident choices. And you made a perfect point as well when you were talking about like your gut instinct. And I think that is something that is so, so strong and we often ignore that feeling, that niggling feeling that you're like, oh, oh, this doesn't necessarily, like I, I feel like something is drawing me to make a decision that's going to direct me in a different place. And it's so hard when you, like for you saying, like you were like pretty certain you were going to have a home birth and then you did a 180. And that is, takes so much guts to be able to do that, to, to kind of say, I'm, I am changing my mind And it's really, really hard, especially if you've already told friends and family and whatever that that's your decision, but you have to go with your gut and you have to own the fact that it is your freedom to choose and you, and the gut instinct, especially for a new mama bear is strong. Like you have to listen to that mama bear gut instinct. That's such a great point because yeah, you don't even know you have that instinct until I guess in hindsight, you're like, oh, I had it then. Yeah. And it's like you, it's like something in your brain is already working in a protective mechanism for your child. And it's like, it's so powerful and it's, and you have to respect it. Right. Because damn, that's like, that takes so much for um, a new mother to be, to make that decision. And it's hard, like it's hard to make those decisions and to have confidence with it. And I think that you must feel, I mean, I'm sure that you're not there thinking, well, we're going to have another baby soon or anything because you're four months postpartum. But I feel like it must give you confidence for the future that you made the right decision. And like, that's got to be such a huge, a huge boost to you as a new parent to be just like, that was, that was a hundred percent the right decision for me. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, but the, but so yeah, like part, first of all, I have baby fever now. I love baby. <laughs> I want to have more babies, but I also want to go back to sailing. I want to go back to sport. And I've been working really hard the last 10 weeks to do that in the gym. 
Um, so I'm like, if I got pregnant, I would totally have the baby. Like I would be so excited just to quit my sport, um, and take care of another one. But, um, so yeah, I am thinking about it, but <laughs> you crazy woman. <laughs> I know. But, uh, but, but the other, the other part of it is like, I do feel that I made a confident decision and I'm proud of that in hindsight. And I will continue. My goal is to continue to try to trust that gut instinct, um, but I'm totally open to changing the approach moving forward. I think I probably would go for another hospital birth if I, you know, the next time we do it. Um, but the, but the truth is that take like kind of taking your own instincts with a grain of salt too. And it's really hard to be a parent. And as you know, and I'm learning, it's just like every choice you make, um, you have the opportunity, opportunity to second guess yourself. And so I think, think, you know, I think just having a healthy appreciation for that gut instinct and also a willingness to change a willingness to pull an audible, you know, or to pivot like, and learn something new. You know, I think that that's like a mantra that you need to hold on to. And we should all hold on to going forward because it's so true. Like even as you could have like five kids and have been parenting for 20 years and you still need to be pliable and, you know, ability to change your mind, even if it's a 180, like that's, that is part of our growth, right? Is being able to admit that you made a, made a decision that, and, and then you get to change that because it's your decision. Like that's the whole deal. Sure. Um, I feel like this was like a really great, like dive back into our, podcasting after such a long break. Um, I think we just hit around the hour mark. And as much as I really, I feel like there are so many other topics that I really want us to talk about. I also feel like I want our people listening to this to feel like, I feel like that was like a great story that they can then take some lessons from. Um, and I think that we should speak in a next episode about postpartum recovery, because that is a huge deal and drop in some current events that we are both been talking about and are both passionate about um, that are happening in the world right now. And we also, as a little sneak preview to anyone listening, um, have spoken about maybe doing a recap of the most recent Olympic and Paralympic games, specifically some of the badass mama athletes that went and competed. And we want to talk about all of the stuff that was happening in the lead up to the games, making it so that it was not discriminatory against breastfeeding mothers and all of that stuff, because there is so much juicy info there that I think we would love to um, talk about with you guys. Absolutely. I think that we had an awesome talk today about what comes after um, the whole preparation for birth and kind of like how expectations and reality can be different. And I am eager to talk about everything that I have learned postpartum with you guys and with Pam. And um, just a reminder, okay, if you guys are into what we're doing, go ahead and head over to Instagram and follow us at the M Game Podcast. Um, and you can also find us on our website at www.themgamepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. If you have ideas or if you think there's somebody that we should talk to, interview, um, report on, uh, what we really want to be doing here is bringing you real life experiences um, from other moms and, you know, athlete moms um, who are also like us working toward, you know, creating a more level playing field and work in sport 
just by bringing awareness to what we do as parents. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. And um, we'll catch you next time. 